Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, this is All Things Tudor, and I'm Deb Hunter. Today, we have the incredible Dr. Valerie Schutte with us, and she's going to be talking about one of your favorite subjects, Mary I. Valerie, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's absolutely my pleasure, and I'm so excited that we're going to be talking about Mary because... No pun intended, but Mary is going through a true renaissance right now, and people have so many questions about her, her life, absolutely everything about her, and of course, people want to know more about Tudor women, so it ticks all the boxes, as they say. So thanks for being my guest. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so happy to talk Mary with you today. Well, let's talk a little about you. If you were at an academic conference, how would you introduce yourself? So I'm an independent historian, which means that I have no affiliation with a college or university. I just research and write on my own. So I earned my PhD from the University of Akron in 2014 in early modern history. And since then, I have worked and researched on tutors and tutor queens and a lot on Mary. And right now, I work from home doing research and I homeschool my child. What a great life you have. Let's talk for a minute about your love of history. What got you involved in history? Honestly, it was a a windy road to get there. When I was in college doing my undergraduate degree, I started out in accounting, and I really thought I was going to go into business and didn't like it very much. So I started taking some like liberal arts classes and got into history and just fell in love and haven't left it since. So I decided to go do a master's in history and still didn't have enough. So I went on to do the PhD. I've always been fascinated. I mean, it was the tutors that got me really interested in history as an undergrad. So I guess I've never really left. I found the subject I really liked and I've just stuck with it. Well, I feel that. I really, truly understand that, how the tutors, once most people find out about them, we're so taken with them, aren't we? Yes. I think the first thing I ever read on the Tudors was a biography of Anne Boleyn. And I was just like, how have I never heard of this before? And just didn't stop reading about them after that. Yeah. It's like a revelation. Let's talk about Mary One. What led to your interest in Queen Mary Tudor? Well, when I was picking out a dissertation project for my PhD, I was actually more interested in the six wives of Henry VIII. Like I said, I was interested in Anne Boleyn. That's kind of what got me into it and Catherine of Aragon. And I was trying to put it together into a PhD project and kind of fell into Mary in that when I started to look at the books that were dedicated to all of these queens, Mary was a big part of that. And it seemed like there was a lot more books to her, so it was a bigger field to mine. So I kind of covered all of them. 
But I really got interested in Mary and how there was so little work done on her historically. And it just seemed from the very beginning that she was incredibly misunderstood or misrepresented. And there was so much room to do new work about books in her reign. So I felt like I really had come on to something that was going to give me a lot of opportunities. And it really has. What are a few things about Mary that you discovered in your research that you feel like we should know about? I mean, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about Mary. And some of the things that I really like to get across in my research is that there's more to her than her reputation of bloody or Catholic or bigot. I mean, there's a lot more nuance. So I really want people to understand when they read my work or listen to me talk that there's a lot more to know about Mary in the same way that there's so much excellent work done on Elizabeth I, that that same kind of work can also be done for Mary and yield great results. I mean, her reign has a lot to offer us. She was an incredibly interesting woman who was educated and artistic and was a really powerful international queen. And I think sometimes all of that gets forgotten because she comes from a family legacy of really powerful, interesting monarchs. You know, you're right about that. In a way, I kind of feel sorry for Mary. Do you feel the same kind of empathy toward her legacy? I do. I mean, I really feel that she's gotten a bad shake as far as her legacy has come down. Because with her father as Henry VIII and her sister as Elizabeth I, and those reigns taking up almost the entire century, I mean, her five-year reign is so brief that it's easy in some ways to skip it or say, well, it wasn't as important And I kind of feel that, I mean, I feel empathy for her as a woman, as a mother, as, you know, that just, there's so much more to learn about her and I don't want her to be reduced down into some stereotypes. I like that a lot. Let's look at your work and your research on her. I'm very curious about that. What you've been doing, where it's going, what can you share with us? Sure. I mean, I've really done a lot of research on Mary. I have two monographs on her. My first one was on books that were dedicated to her. That came out in 2015. My second monograph, Princesses Mary and Elizabeth Tudor and the Gift Book Exchange, came out in 2021. So that's a slim monograph, but I really have it focused on the translations that they both undertook as princesses and who those were dedicated to and what that says about their educations. Because I find that a lot of times Mary and Elizabeth are compared in scholarship and almost always when they're compared, it's Elizabeth is greater and Mary is found wanting. And I really wanted to show that there was an area in which the two sisters could be directly compared, their translations, their literary activity prior to them both getting the throne, and how similar, in fact, they are, or in that Mary did the same things that Elizabeth did, but she never really gets credit for that. And then I've done several edited collections on Mary, one that came out for her 500th birthday in 2016, and then earlier this year, a two-volume edited collection set on Mary in literature and writing. And then I've also done boatloads of articles and book chapters, and my research really focuses on Mary and books. I mean, that's kind of what I was trained in. That's what I'm interested in. So things dedicated to her, given to her, supported by her, written about her, you know, that kind of thing. Let's get back to what you said about 
her and Elizabeth. Is it true Elizabeth took a lot of things that Mary had said and worked them into her speeches and things like that? I mean, I absolutely think that Elizabeth learned quite a bit from Mary. So whether it was just how to be a queen, how to rule over a council of men, since they were both regnants, I think even Elizabeth's decision or her wavering on her marriage, I think that she saw how important it was dynastically and imperially and really took her time to decide, which is maybe why she never got married. But I think she did definitely pick up lots of things from Mary, too. And I can't prove, but I tell people all the time that I definitely think Elizabeth was aware of things that Mary did as a queen, especially in terms of speeches. So Elizabeth is really credited with these fantastic speeches. And everybody knows, you know, at Tilbury before the Armada, she gave this rousing speech of her being queen to the country and really encouraging her men to go forth and defeat the Armada. But similarly, Mary gave the same type of rousing speech in 1554, 1555 with the Guildhall speech, whenever Wyatt was coming into London. And there's lots of similarities between their speeches and their actions and how they dealt with those battles, if you will. So I really do think that Elizabeth and definitely Elizabeth's counselors, many of whom were hangers-on from Mary, really picked up lots of things from Mary, whether good or bad, but just examples of how to manage and do things, you know, as a queen. Those are very valid points. Thank you so much. Let's get back to you and your research. Are you doing anything right now on Mary? I actually am. I have a couple projects going on on Mary right now. So one is another edited collection, and it should be hopefully coming out next year. And it's the making and remaking of Lady Jane Grey and Mary I. So I had been really interested lately in Mary's accession and what happened at her accession and the texts that were written about her accession. But when you look at her accession, you cannot separate it from Jane Grey, who, you know, she competed for the throne with for a month. And At that time, their texts are so intertwined and in some points the language mirrors each other. So we came up to do this collection that really shows how intertwined the accession of Mary and concepts of her as a queen were entwined with concepts of Lady Jane potentially being a queen at the same time. So that's my first project that will hopefully come out soon. I'm also doing an edited collection on Mary and continental humanism. So the goal of this is to really show how during Mary's reign, and even before, during her lifetime, she engaged with humanism, how humanists represented her, and how humanism really flourished during her reign, when usually it is seen as, I mean, with the reputation of her reign being kind of barren or backwards or non-important, people tend to forget all of the excellent scholarship that occurred during her reign. So this is to kind of bring focus on one specific aspect of humanism and bring all of that back to the fore. And then I do have a few series of articles on Mary and books given to her in 1555. I'm really working, I'm kind of stuck in 1555 right now. Well, let's talk about that. What was that all about? Why was it an important year for Mary? I think 1555 really can be considered both the high and low of Mary's reign. Because really by the end of 1554, she was 
firmly established as queen and the threat from why it was done. She had her coronation. She was married to Philip in July of 1554. Catholicism was just reinstated. And at the end of the year, she announced her pregnancy. So I think going into 1555, there was so much hope and excitement and expectation for what her marriage and her reign could bring in terms of dynasty, in terms of joining Philip and expanding the empire, uh, both for England and for Spain, the return of Catholicism. I think there was just so much high expectation and hope in 1555. But really, by the end of the year, it was kind of all dashed because by August, she did not have a baby and she left her confinement with no explanation. The end of August, Philip left Mary. He left England for the Low Countries and he didn't return for two years. Mary's international reputation kind of was pretty bad. She wasn't invited to some of the major peace negotiations that year between France and Spain. And then England had its own internal problems like bad harvests. So really for as much expectation and as there was at the beginning of the year, it was really all gone by the end of the year. So I think that 1555 is just so important to show what her reign could have been and maybe wasn't all at the same time. I'm curious about her false pregnancies. Do you have any insight into those? I'm actually going to be working on a big project on that very soon. That is my next big project with Mary. It's something I've thought about for many years. I'm not so interested in, and I think it's just incredibly hard to look back 500 years and maybe diagnose what happened. So I'm not so interested in if she was pregnant or how she lost a pregnancy or if it was a phantom pregnancy, but really how it was represented and what it meant and what it meant to her and what it, how it was represented in England and how it was represented abroad and kind of the larger idea of what motherhood meant, especially for a woman who had five stepmothers and was a godmother to more than 40 children. I'm interested just in what motherhood and maternity and reproduction meant at that time and how it was represented in texts and images and coins and badges. Because really, if you look back at a lot of the sources, there are so many ways in which Mary was represented as pregnant and what that meant. So I think there's a lot of really interesting things that could come out of Mary's pregnancies or research into them. It's really another poignant part of her life that is just briefly touched on, and I'm glad you're doing more research into it to throw some light into that area of her history. I'm very intrigued by that. Thanks, Valerie. On Mary, what do you feel are some major misconceptions about her? Um, Probably the biggest misconception that still exists and that just won't go away is the Bloody Mary moniker. I mean, I think it's definitely a misconception. It's kind of tired at this point, but it just doesn't go away. And I would really like that too. I mean, I'm hoping that some of the new work that I've been doing, that other people have been doing, really pushes against that. I mean, yes, heretics were burned in her reign, but they were also persecuted by her father, her brother, and her sister. So I think in some ways it really boils her reign down to one thing, but also takes the responsibility away from 
her other family members that did the exact same thing. I think there's also a misconception that her reign was barren culturally. And this is part of my interest in her pregnancies actually is one of the words in the last 100 years that's really come to describe Mary and her reign is barren. And I mean, part of it comes from the fact that she didn't have children, but then it also now has become applied to her reign as a whole. And I really wanna fight against the idea of barrenness And I mean, her reign had so much cultural growth and it just isn't true that it was stagnant. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of other work or ways to research her reign or things that are misunderstood just about cultural. And in some ways her reign pushed culture and in some ways her reign was very continuous from her father and into her sister's reigns and her brother's reign of the ways in which culture was performed and understood. So I think there's... Lots of misconceptions, which is actually kind of good for me because that means there's lots of new ways to constantly be researching into Mary, too. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. And as a listener to this message, you are already aware of the All Things Tudor podcast. There is also an All Things Tudor book club and a periodic live audio chat, often featuring special guests. Members of the All Things Tudor Facebook group can look forward to some upcoming surprises. So you're invited to become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group and answer the simple membership questions. We look forward to having you join us at All Things Tudor. I want to circle back around to something real quick. You mentioned her and Lady Jane Grey. What's your take on that? How did she justify executing her teenage cousin? I mean, I am Team Mary, I'm not going to lie. So I do think that she was the right inheritor of her brother and not Jane Grey. I do think that we'll never know exactly if it was Edward or John Dudley or some kind of combination who really worked to put Jane on the throne. And I also think too, that Jane was probably a pawn in a big political game and not necessarily 100% innocent, but a pawn, yes, and that she was married to the Duke of Northumberland's son, you know, Guilford Dudley, in an attempt to maybe put both of them on the throne where they would have co-ruled. So I do think that there's a lot of things there that we still don't quite understand how they happened, but it definitely seems like there was lots of politics involved and we just won't know because Edward was so young at the time if he was behind all of it or if it was his advisors. But Mary executing Jane is something that I think Mary did not initially want to do. I mean, she did have almost all of the conspirators in the tower and not executed except for Dudley. He was the big one that was executed at the beginning of Mary's reign, I think probably to kind of set an example. And he was definitely you know, the ringleader of putting Jane on the throne once Edward had died. But I mean, I think that what Jane and Guildford and even Jane's father and some of the Duke of Northumberland's other sons were still in the tower 
And it wasn't really until Wyatt's Rebellion when Mary faced another possible threat to her throne and when she realized that having Jane around meant that there was a competitor queen, potentially, that Mary had to take action. But I think she did so very reluctantly, maybe in the same way that Elizabeth was reluctant to execute Mary, Queen of Scots. That's very understandable. And from a female's point of view, I believe, and probably from anyone's point of view, really, we can understand how something like that would take so much thought and be so heartbreaking and so difficult to do. So thanks for shedding some light on it there for me. So, Valerie, where do you see the field going for Marian studies? I really think there's still lots of opportunity for Marian studies. I think we can still learn more about her international reputation and influence in Spain. I think that we don't quite get yet or don't always remember that she was really an international queen with lots of titles. You know, she wasn't just Queen of England. She was also Queen of Spain. She was Duchess of several places through her marriage with Philip. And I think that we still have more to understand about what that meant in terms of Mary as a European queen, not just an English queen. I think that there's still lots of opportunities to look at the ways in which culture changed under her reign or what culture was offered. And um, really taking seriously, one of the things that really gets focused on a lot is the Marian martyrs and the exiles and the Marian exiles. And I really want to focus on or think that there's room to look at the people who stayed in England and what that contributed. I think there's lots of room for Catholic networking. I mean, there's so many works and excellent works on Protestant women at the time in the mid 16th century, but the same kind of studies don't really exist for Catholic networking women. And I think that that would be a really interesting place to go. And then as we've already kind of talked about, just Mary and motherhood and how the idea of her barrenness as a failure is still so prevalent, yet really isn't true. So there's a lot of room for growth there, isn't there? I think so. I mean, I think that there's a lot of ways in which she's still not understood. And one of the things I think my books that came out earlier this year did was we kind of took methodology that's already been applied to Elizabeth and really applied it to Mary in terms of writing and literature. And I think there's still more room to take some of the amazing methodologies that have been applied to some of the other Tudor monarchs or later queens and really apply them to Mary and understand her more well-rounded and her reign as a whole and even her upbringing instead of just kind of focusing on a few distinct points or times of her life or her failures, really. Well, you have so much information and so much knowledge about Mary and you talked about your love of Tudor history in general. Do you work on any other Tudor queens? Do you research any of them at all? I do. I've actually published on every Tudor queen, from Elizabeth of York to Elizabeth I, mostly in terms of books dedicated to them. I mean, that's really where I've looked. I think I have articles or chapters on all of the Tudor queens related to that. But right now, I'm actually starting to turn my attention to Anne of Cleves, probably another Tudor queen who's really overlooked or understudied because of how brief her marriage was to Henry VIII. So I'm actually writing a biography, a cultural biography of Anne of Cleves and working on some essays. And really, I think as my research moves forward, it's really going to be on ways in which 
Mary and Anne or books related to them kind of overlapped. So I'm finding lots of ways to connect the two women, which I'm really excited about. That's very intriguing. I want to know more. So can you tell us any more about your research into Mary and Anne? Sure. I mean, it really started with a few years ago, I did a conference presentation on Anne and books and manuscripts that were given to her. And it was really brief. And I kind of put it in the back of my mind that there's definitely more to work on with Anne. And a couple years ago, I came across the opportunity to write a biography of her. And I thought, well, there just isn't really a great biography of Anne. And there's no academic biography of Anne. So I decided to go for it. And that has turned out to be really rewarding and challenging all at the same time. It's really pushes me outside of my comfort zone in terms of what I normally do. But what I'm finding really interesting connecting Anne and Mary are books. So I am just writing an article right now about a book, a handwritten manuscript that was dedicated to Mary in 1555. It was given to her that May and it was probably to celebrate her pregnancy. But the person who gave it to her was an ambassador from the Duke of Cleves. And he visited England five or six times to work with Anne and her financial situation and her position in the royal family within England. So this man was like a liaison kind of between Duke William, Anne, and I'm really finding lots of those connections. And I'm really excited about those connections and what they mean. Well, that is exciting because those two women are possibly two of the most popular in the Tudor realm right now. Oh, I absolutely think so. I mean, especially with the musical Six, you know, the Six Wives are experiencing, like you said at the beginning, such a renaissance of interest in them. And people like Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn have always really generated lots of interest. And even Catherine Parr, to an extent, But this, in the last couple of years, has really, I mean, some of the lesser-known Tudor queens like Anne of Cleves, I mean, they're really experiencing lots of interest, and I'm happy to put out some new ways in which to understand them, again, without kind of relying on the stereotypes that have always defined them. Well, I love that because they were all six very different women. They all had six very distinct personalities. And you mentioned six. The thing about that is it presents them as people and not just, you know, here's the wives of this king. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And Me too. Uh, yeah, it's just so we have so much to learn about them and new information is coming to light, like your work and what you're discovering and other historians are out there. And like you said, it's just a wonderful time to be interested in, well, it's always been a wonderful time to be interested in Tudor history for some of us, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right now, so much new information is coming out and we are discovering new things. And I am loving talking to you about all this. Let's go back to Mary. What would be one thing you found out about her that we don't know and that would intrigue us even more about her? Oh, that's a really good question. I'm trying, okay, one thing that's really intriguing about Mary. Well, you can do two or three, but (laughs) sometimes one is just easier. I mean, to go back, I work on her books. So I think that things that are intriguing are 
I mean, how educated she was, but that's not necessarily new, but that is something that I think is intriguing. I think what's intriguing is how powerful she was, but that that's not always recognized. So, I mean, I think it's intriguing that at her accession, she takes control of her own fate. She goes north. She's the one that's writing letters to people to come support her. And I really think it's intriguing how self-aware and how powerful she really was when sometimes that gets kind of glossed over or forgotten in her larger history. But I really think it's important to remember how she was really trained to be a queen by her parents, and she really was whenever she finally became a queen. I mean, she knew what she was doing, so I find that to be pretty intriguing. It really is, and she was the first crowned queen of England, correct? Right. In, in her own right. Yes. And I think, too, part of that is what's intriguing about that is that she was the crowned queen of England and ruled in her own right. And really, her gender in that way didn't matter. You know, she was the crowned queen. There was nobody above her. But then when she got married, she accepted traditional gender roles within her marriage. So Philip was the head of her intimate family, but she was the head of the nation. And I find that to be really intriguing also, how they worked that power dynamic and how it wasn't always happy. Yep, that's very interesting right there. And I would love to know even more about it because what little I do know about Mary, I've always felt that she angered the male powers that be when she married Philip. And that was kind of the beginning of her end. Well, so when she became queen, one of the things I have recently learned, and I think really is a revelation, but a lot of the new work is showing that when she became queen, her gender didn't really matter. So at the time of Edward VI's death, the next seven people in line for the throne were women. So it was Mary, it was Jane Grey, it was Elizabeth, it was Margaret Douglas, it was the Stuarts that were children of... Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's younger sister. So I think that at the time, her gender wasn't an issue at the time of her accession. And what really made her the rightful queen was legitimacy and dynasty. So her father had been the rightful king. Her brother had been the rightful king. So she was the rightful queen. And I think that in that way, her gender wasn't so important. But then what became problematic, like you said, was her marriage to Philip. And I think it had, there were lots of issues bound up in that marriage. So one was how was she going to manage being queen regnant, head of the nation, but have a husband and in a traditional you know, relationship, the husband was the head of the family. So how did you manage her being married? Then did that husband have control? And one of the ways that she managed that was by the really strict marital contract negotiations, which said in the realm, you can have the title king, but you don't get to make decisions. And if we have a kid and I die, the kid is the king or queen, not you. And that really angered even the Spanish. I mean, Philip vocally wasn't really happy about their marital contract, but she made it so that within the family, he was the head, but he was not ahead of her politically. And I think part of the reason that that marriage kind of angered some of her counselors at home, it was a gendered aspect, is how do you manage a foreign king or how does the queen maintain her power without his overbearing influence? 
which is why some of her counselors preferred that she would maybe marry an Englishman, because there was also ideas maybe of xenophobia caught up in this. You know, we are England. We don't want these outside powers. You know, we don't want a nation like Spain coming to swallow up England within its empire. You know, so, I mean, there was lots and lots of issues tied up into that one marriage. Exactly. And by that point, so many people in England, there had been at least one generation that had been Protestant. So you had that at work against her. And, you know, I just wonder with her having cancer, if all this stress is what possibly led to her death. I mean, I, I think that is something that we'll never precisely know. But I think that you are right in that her reign or her life would have been very stressful. So until she was 17, she was the Princess of Wales. You know, like unless her parents had another child, she was going to be the next monarch of England. And, you know, by the time things happened, like the splitting the church from Rome and her mother's essential house arrest where they were kept separate, and then all of these subsequent marriages, and then Edward's really more radical reformation that took place during her reign. And I really think that she did have lots of stress. I mean, she was often kind of caught in the middle or a focal point of some things that she wasn't even involved in. But, you know, she became a symbol for Catholicism. And then during her reign, she had to take on, you know, she didn't have children, but she thought she was pregnant and her husband was a foreigner and he kept leaving. And I think that there really would have been lots of stress on her shoulders, you know, by the time that she did pass away in 1558. So, so true. Let's talk about you for a minute. Tell us about your works, where we can find them, where we can find you on social media, and if you have any upcoming events that we would be interested in. Sure. So I am on Instagram at Tudor Queenship. I have a website that is tudorqueenship.com. So you can find there pretty much my updated CV, what I've been working on, some of my upcoming projects, other podcasts and stuff that I've done and some video lectures that you can find online. I don't really have anything else coming up at the moment. I guess just some published works that I'll have coming out hopefully over winter on Mary. So yeah, I have some more new research for you to read. That sounds great. And if we can't find your works at our local bookstore, can we find them on Amazon? They are all on Amazon. Many of my books are in the Palgrave Macmillan Queenship and Power series. So you can find them on Palgrave's Macmillan's website. And that's an excellent series, not just for Mary, but for loads of queens in the pre-modern world, which I highly recommend. So you could go there too. Well, I really appreciate you being here today and you're welcome to come back at any time. Well, thank you so much. This was so much fun to chat about Mary with you. Well, it is. And I think we could probably sit here and talk for another hour about Mary and queens and the Tudors and females and men in power and people in general and just everything about the Tudor era, don't you? Oh, absolutely. I think there's so much more we could talk about and there's so much more really exciting stuff being done right now. So, I mean, I'd be happy to come back and talk to you anytime. That sounds great. So thanks again, Valerie, and special thanks to our listeners. You make the magic happen. Please follow the podcast on the platform of your choice. Leave a review. And I want to give a special thanks today to Grace B., who has been a really great supporter in the All Things Tutor 
group and online. So thanks, Grace, and thanks to all of you for listening. And we will catch y'all next week. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.